So the first two messages in this series, especially in the first one, when we talked about life giving us lemons, it's been just that, life giving us lemons. It's life that throws tough times and sour situations at us. It's, it's at the feet of life that we have laid the blame for those lemons, which is not the wrong way to look at it. The lemons of life really are a result of the fall of man, of sin, and so it's a part of life. But I purposely left out another angle on this and saved it for today. And it's possible you've thought about this at some point over the last two weeks if you've been here for the first two parts of the series and maybe wondered if and when we were going to address this as part of our series, When Life Gives You. Because what if it's not just life that gives you lemons? Sometimes the lemons we receive don't come from some general place we call life. Sometimes they come from actual people around us. Some of the lemons you've received in this life are a direct result of someone else throwing it at you, of someone else wronging you. And so in that situation, it's not enough to just say, well, life gave me lemons. Sometimes you can actually put a name to that or a person to that and say, you know, Frank gave me lemons, Sally gave me lemons, maybe your boss gave you lemons, your neighbor gave you lemons, or your spouse gave you lemons, or any number of other people, specific people, who at some point wronged you. And when you can put a face or a name or both to the giver of lemons, I think two things tend to happen. Number one, the lemon is more sour. And number two, the sourness lingers longer. I think there's just a a deeper pain here a deeper hurt here when we can tie it to a specific person. And so you might wonder how we make lemonade out of those kinds of situations, because I'll admit to you it's difficult. It's a lot more difficult to get that different perspective that making lemonade out of lemons requires when the lemons are coming from specific people that we can identify. When your distaste for the lemon has a specific target, that's hard to let go of. And I wish I could say... Very simply, just treat it like any other lemon. Trust God and know that He's in control. Remember that God has a greater plan. Remember that everything in this life is temporary, and that includes pain, and that absolutely includes lemons. And that God has something amazing for you beyond this life. Those things are true, and maybe those are things you need to hear today. That God is faithful. In theory, that should be enough to help us make lemonade out of those lemons. But in practice, it can be extremely difficult. You see, just like last week when we figured out that so many of us struggle with worry, just as many, if not all of us, struggle with forgiveness. And as long as we struggle with forgiveness, those lemons that people throw at us and the sourness that they bring will linger. But if we can forgive and do so remembering that no matter what people do, no matter how people act, no matter how people are, if we can remember that God is faithful, it will make all the difference in the world. And so I think the best route that we can take today is to take a look at a story from Scripture that may have something to teach us about what to do when people are responsible for the lemons in our lives. And it's one of those stories in Scripture where you read it and you wonder, is it possible somebody made this up because it's so crazy? And then you keep reading it and you realize that it is so outlandish, so ridiculous, that it must in fact be true because nobody is making something like this up. And the story is about a man named Joseph. Joseph was the son of Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. This is a pretty important family to God's story. 
And this particular part of the story is found in the book of Genesis, beginning in chapter 37. And we'll spend most of our time today in the book of Genesis, kind of jumping around through this story. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 37. So Jacob settled again in the land of Canaan, where his father has lived, has lived as a foreigner. And this is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flocks. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. And Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. I feel like in my life sometimes I look around my house and remember that I have four kids and think that's crazy, that four is crazy. And then, then we read some of these families in Scripture. You know, Joseph was one of 12. And these were different times. Things were certainly a lot different culturally. Joseph was not a full brother of all these brothers. Their ages were probably pretty well spread out. But Joseph was born at the time in Jacob's life that caused Jacob to favor him well above all of the other brothers. As parents, I feel like our natural inclination is to go out of our way to make sure our kids know we don't have a favorite, right? Like, that's our job. They'll ask, won't they? They'll say, Mommy, which one of us do you love the most? And he's going, all of you. They ask me that, I say, Mommy. That's, that's the answer to that question. <laughs> like, we don't have favorites, right? We can't. And even if we did, which we don't, even if we did, we certainly know that it would be beyond detrimental for that to be a known piece of information, but Jacob clearly didn't see things that way. Twelve sons, and he clearly favored one. Twelve sons, and one gets a very special gift. Also, the one that got the very special gift happens to be one that does a good amount of tattling to his father about the activities of his brothers. This was already a recipe for disaster. And understand, in this story, you'll see lemons come from a few different places. But right up front, I want to make sure we don't miss that Joseph is not completely off the hook in understanding who caused some of the issues that happened in his life. You see, shortly after we read about the beautiful robe, the gift that he got from his father, maybe you've heard it called the coat of many colors. Shortly after that happens, Joseph has a dream, two dreams, in fact. And in both dreams, things that represented each of Joseph's brothers bowed down to something that represented Joseph. In one, it was their bundles of grain bowing down to his bundle of grain. In another, it was 11 stars bowing down to him, along with the sun and moon bowing down to him. And so in this case, even Jacob and Joseph's mother, the sun and the moon, were included in who would bow down. Have you ever had a dream that was so ridiculous that you, you kind of wanted to tell people, but at the same time you thought, maybe I shouldn't tell people about this? Like maybe this was just too weird and nobody, they'll think I'm a little out there or they, just, they won't believe me, they'll think I'm making it up. Most of us, I would suggest, if we had dreams like Joseph had here, we would keep them to ourselves. Even if we thought it meant something, that we would safely say, you know what, I'm going to keep this to myself. This is self-preservation at its finest. Joseph knew his brothers couldn't stand him. Why would he stir the pot? Unfortunately, Joseph didn't see it that way. Verse 10, this time he told the dream to his father as well as to his brothers, but his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that, he asked. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dreams meant. 
He really made it worse for himself by sharing these dreams, but he believed that they had great and true long-term meaning. And so some time passes, and Jacob sends all the sons older than Joseph to Shechem to care for his flocks, and he sends Joseph out a little while later to check on them. And that's when his brothers introduced some serious lemons into Joseph's life at verse 18 and following. When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. We can tell our father, a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. I want you to imagine, try, I want you to try to imagine with me being that frustrated, hating your brother that much. I would suggest that even if you have a terrible relationship with your brother, or really with anyone, I would suggest that it's a huge stretch for you to ever get to the even beginning of the thought that would say killing them is the answer. That's how much Joseph's brothers disliked him, that that was the easy answer here for them. Here comes our brother, let's kill him. Except for one brother, Reuben, who seemed to have a slightly better head on his shoulders, at least for the moment, Reuben talked his brothers out of killing Joseph and instead suggested that they leave him to die on his own in a cistern. That way they would not have to shed his blood themselves and their hands would be clean. Now, Reuben makes that sound like a good idea that the other guys like, well, hey, that actually makes sense. That keeps us from having to do the dirty work. It's sad. Now, Scripture does tell us that Reuben actually intended to return later to the cistern and rescue Joseph, so his heart was a little more in the right place, but at the same time, this plan, the other brothers agreed with. They said, yeah, let's keep our hands clean. But in Reuben's absence, another brother chimes in. In verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain by killing our brother? We'd have to cover up the crime. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver. And the traders took him to Egypt. The worst line in that whole section of Scripture there is, after all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. Doesn't that statement from Judah make this so much worse on some level? Yeah, maybe we shouldn't let him die. He is our brother. Let's sell him instead. That's much better. And these guys are just continually convincing themselves that whatever he gets, he deserves. Somehow they justified that in their mind, not only was Joseph, did Joseph need to be legitimately sold into slavery, but they were actually doing him a favor by doing that instead of either killing him or leaving him to die. But that's what they did. They sold him into slavery. And needing a story to cover it up for their father, they took his robe that they had taken from him, that gift that his father had given him, and they dipped it in animal blood and they showed it to Jacob, allowing him to believe that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. And Jacob mourned as any father would. But to the brothers, I imagined it seemed like a success because their annoyance was gone. The one their father favored was gone. He was no longer the problem. And for Joseph, he went from favored child who had what he needed and got what he wanted and was deeply loved by his father to a slave. His brothers introduced these lemons into his life that he had not experienced before. In fact, if we wanted to draw Joseph's life on this piece of paper, you know, he started off pretty good. Favored by his father, the favorite son. Life was trending upward. And then his brothers decided, 
that that didn't need to be the way it was, and they threw him in a cistern and sold him into slavery, and his life came back down the hill. And in that cistern, as he was sold into slavery, I would not blame Joseph for one second if he began to lose faith in the God of his fathers, because this was absolutely a messed up situation that should have never happened, and yet here he was, sold by his brothers to slave traders, holding a big pile of lemons because he was hated by his own brothers. Now, I don't imagine any of you were ever sold into slavery by your brothers, but I do know that each and every one of us can, if we're willing to, think of a situation where someone we should have been able to trust let us down and dropped a huge pile of lemons right in our lap. We can think of situations where we were betrayed, where we were sabotaged, where we got messed up and hurt by someone else's actions, where we ended up in a bad place through very little or no fault of our own. We've all been in situations like that. And for a Jesus follower, when those kinds of things happen, I know at least for me, there's always at least a moment where I wonder where God was in that. I'd call it doubt. It creeps in. And it doesn't mean I've given up on God. It doesn't mean I don't believe. But it does mean that I struggle to reconcile what has happened in my life with a perfect and loving God. Sometimes it is difficult for our brains to say, yeah, God, God is still good. God is still on our throne because we see so much bad in the world around us. We struggle with that, and that's when doubt creeps in. I actually think it's a natural response. We need to be reminded from time to time that we weren't promised a perfect life, and we need to be reminded from time to time that doubt is something to work through, not something that condemns us. And I would say most of the lemons we've received from the people in our lives, they don't begin to compare to the situation Joseph was in. And we don't have anything in Scripture that, right here at least, that speaks to Joseph's mindset in the cistern or his mindset as he was sold. But Joseph had shown himself to have confidence in two places already at this point in his life. He had confidence in himself probably to a fault. But he also had confidence in God. Joseph may not have been thrilled with his situation, but he did not forget that God was faithful and even in the midst of being sold into slavery, we see the beginnings of a reminder of God's faithfulness in Joseph's life. Verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianite traders arrived in Egypt, where they sold Joseph to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Potiphar was captain of the palace guard. You see, even without knowing any real details of what this would look like, being the slave of an officer of Pharaoh was a significant upgrade over being sold into slavery. And Joseph's life was going right back up in the right direction. It's not lemonade, but it's a little taste of sugar in those lemons, and it got better from there. In, verse, in chapter 39, beginning in verse 2, it says, The Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar, so he made... He soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. From the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. All his household affairs ran smoothly, and his crops and livestock flourished. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. With Joseph there, he didn't worry about a thing except what kind of food 
to eat. Now, this is quite a rise from cistern to slavery to now he is running the household of a high-ranking official in Egypt. God was so obviously with Joseph that Potiphar couldn't deny it. God was so obviously with Joseph that the crops and the livestock and everything about this household that Joseph was in charge of was flourishing. Everything was going well. Joseph's lemons were absolutely lemonade. God had been faithful in the cistern, and he was certainly faithful in Potiphar's house. But as it turns out, Joseph was a good-looking young man. Some of us are just cursed that way. It happens. It wasn't his fault. But it's clear that he was because Potiphar's wife began to take notice that Joseph was young and strong and good-looking. And as she noticed that, she began to offer herself to Joseph. Joseph resisted, reminding her that he had authority over everything in the house, but that he did not have authority over her, that it would be a betrayal of his master, that it would be a great sin against God. And he continued to resist, and she continued to press him. And one day as she grabbed him by the cloak and insisted, he ran away so quickly and so effectively that he left his cloak in her hand, which gave her the opportunity to concoct a story that cast Joseph in the negative light instead of her. And I'm not sure I had ever considered this before, but as I studied this week, I thought, there's the second time in this story of Joseph that an article of clothing left behind became the centerpiece of a lie. They had his coat of many colors. The brothers kept it, and they used it to convince their father that he was dead. And now Potiphar's wife, keeping his cloak, used it to convince her husband of Joseph's misdeeds. In chapter 39, verse 16 and following, she kept the cloak with her until her husband came home. Then she told him her story. That Hebrew slave you brought into our house tried to come in and fool around with me, she said, but when I screamed, he ran outside leaving his cloak with me. Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph and threw him into prison where the king's prisoners were held. And there he remained. And so things were going so well. Things were on an upswing. And right back down, this time into prison, immediately. And I wonder if you can remember a time in your life when it felt like the lemons just kept coming. And you'd get a little relief, you'd make a little taste of lemonade out of those lemons, God would show his faithfulness, and then something else would hit, more lemons. Right back to sour times. There's so many metaphors for this. You've felt like you were spinning your tires. You felt like you couldn't get your head above water. Maybe you felt like you were stuck in a rut. Maybe you are right now. In moments like that, it is very difficult to see God's faithfulness. Even if you know it's there, it is difficult to see God's faithfulness. And it's at that point that a lot of people lose faith. And their doubt goes beyond just doubt, and they stop believing all the things they've previously believed about God. It's often in the midst of repetitive lemons that our faith undergoes its toughest challenges. And the truth is, not everyone can handle that. But understand this, especially if you're in that place right now, that is not the right time to lean on yourself. It's not the right time to assume that God has forgotten you. It's the right time instead to lean further 
into God because he is faithful. You see, Joseph's story didn't end there. In fact, the verses that immediately follow Joseph being thrown into prison for this crime he did not commit, we read this in verse 21 and following. But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. The warden had no worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. And suddenly, even though he had been in prison, things come right back up. I'll tell you what, the Lord must have been with Joseph in a huge way because nobody is this awesome on their own. That as a prisoner, they would be put in charge of the prison. It's amazing. And yet here we are again, Joseph with a major lemon problem in prison, and he just starts making lemonade again because of God's faithfulness. And Pharaoh gets mad at two of his officials, and he throws them in prison with Joseph. And while they're there, those two officials have some crazy dreams. And you may remember, our whole story started with Joseph interpreting dreams. He has that gift, and so he interprets their dreams. And in both cases, what Joseph said came true. And one of those officials was restored to his position, but Joseph remained in prison, still in charge, but still in prison. And for two years, that's where he is. Life is good, but he's still in prison. He just happens to be the A number one prisoner. And after those two years go by, Pharaoh himself has some vivid and very disturbing dreams that no one could seem to interpret. And in that moment, that restored official, when he hears of these dreams, he remembers Joseph and he tells Pharaoh, I know a guy. And they call for Joseph. And Joseph not only interprets the dreams... He essentially saves Pharaoh and all the land and beyond. You see, he interprets the dreams and he lets Pharaoh know a famine is coming, a famine that will wipe out everything, a famine that is beyond anything they could expect or understand. But he also brings him more than just knowledge of the famine. He brings him a plan from God of how to be ready and even thrive during the coming famine. Verse, uh, chapter 41, verse 37 and following, Joseph's suggestions were well received by Pharaoh and his officials. So Pharaoh asked his officials, can we find anyone else like this man, so obviously filled with the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has revealed the meaning of the dreams to you, clearly no one else is as intelligent or wise as you are. You will be in charge of my court, and all my people will take orders from you. Only I, sitting on my throne, will have a rank higher than yours. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and placed it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in fine linen clothing and hung a gold chain around his neck. Then he had Joseph ride in the chariot reserved for his second in command. And wherever Joseph went, the command was shouted, kneel down. So Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of all Egypt. And Pharaoh said to him, I am Pharaoh. But no one will lift a hand or foot in the entire land of Egypt without your approval. And we go from favored son to cistern to sold to an official in Potiphar's house to falsely accused to prison to second in command of all of Egypt. 
That's some life. That is some life for Joseph to now be in. It's some life where he's been, but now life is good and only getting better. And if you've heard the rest of the story, you know that, that in, the fam- in the famine, everyone was affected, but Egypt was okay because of Joseph's preparation. And Joseph's family, being outside of Egypt, were unprepared for the famine. And so as word gets around that Egypt has storehouses full of food, people begin to come. It was because of Joseph's interpretation, it was because of God's plan that that was even there. But to Joseph's family, what Egypt was was an opportunity to survive. And so most of the sons of Jacob traveled to Egypt to buy grain. And we read this in chapter 42, verses 5 and 6. So Jacob's sons arrived in Egypt along with others to buy food, for the famine was in Canaan as well. Since Joseph was governor of all of Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all the people, it was to him that his brothers came. When they arrived, they bowed before him, their faces to the ground, and just like that, without his brothers even realizing it was happening, Joseph's original dream and his interpretation of it came true in this moment when his brothers bowed down to him. That's a crazy life. Crazy up and down life. And there's more to the story, and really there's another whole sermon here about forgiveness that we ought to talk about another time. But eventually Joseph both reveals himself as their brother and ultimately forgives them and saves his own family who had sentenced him to slavery, if not death. I love the story. I love every bit of this story. It is intense. It's up and down, and it ends with a beautiful moment of forgiveness and love and family. It absolutely should inspire us, but I want to talk about this line that I've drawn. And if you can't see it, it's a very jagged line, because his life was so up and down, and every time it seemed to be going well, something would happen. It's kind of painful to look at, but the truth is, it may look a lot like your life. Because of the fallen nature of this world, our lives have ups and downs. They have mountains and valleys, and your mountains may not be as high as Joseph's, and I certainly hope that your valleys aren't as low as Joseph's, but they are still there. Your line goes up and down, just like Joseph's. My line goes up and down, just like Joseph's, and it can make us dizzy. It can be discouraging. It can cause us to doubt, especially when we're on the downturn. In some cases, it can even cause us to lose faith. And yet, despite everything we read and talked about with Joseph today, it appears that he never did, that he never lost faith. How? How could he not lose faith? Well, I would suggest that there is something missing from this picture of Joseph's life, that there's another line that is not yet on that paper Before I draw it, I want to back it up with some scripture about God, the God that Joseph served. Psalm chapter 119, listen to what this has to say about God in verse 89 through 91. Your eternal word, O Lord, stands firm in heaven. Your faithfulness extends to every generation as enduring as the earth you created. Your regulations remain true to this day, for everything serves your plans. You see, God is completely in control, and we need to be Reminded of that. And one of my favorite underrated passages of Scripture found in the book of Numbers, the words of God through a man named Balaam, Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, God is not a man, so he does not lie. 
He is not human, so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? You see, ultimately, God is faithful. And above the troubles of this world, above the lemons, above the mountains and the valleys, if we can remember that God is faithful, we can deal with anything this world or any person might have to throw at us. The thread we, we see through Joseph's story was not his own resilience. It was not his own resilience. It was God's faithfulness. You see, our, our line may look a lot like this, but God's looks like this. It is steady, it is constant, it is unchanging, and there's comfort in that, there is encouragement in that. Additionally, our line has a firm beginning and end. God's does not. God's goes on eternally in both directions. And so beyond unchanging, He is eternal, and there should be comfort and encouragement in that as well. Joseph, despite the fact that this is where he lived, this is what he focused on, that his God was faithful. Life was hard, but God was faithful. Life was good, but God was faithful. Ultimately, he understood that God is love and has a plan, and neither of those things will change. No matter what happens in our life, neither of those things will change. No matter how we handle what happens in this life, neither of those things will change. That's amazing. That God is love and he has a plan and his plan is perfect. And in light of that love and in light of that plan, together with God, just like Joseph did, we can take any lemons this world or people have to throw at us and turn them into lemonade. Knowing that beyond this life, God has eternal life for us where there aren't any lemons. God's faithfulness truly is like pure sugar to a sour lemon. And I don't think we talk about the faithfulness of God nearly enough. We have to be aware of it. We have to remember it. We have to let it be that sugar to the lemons of life. We have to. Because otherwise we'll spend all our time trying to solve all our own problems. We'll spend all our time trying to be our own guide. We'll spend all our time trying to reverse the down and stay on the up or stay on the mountain and out of the valley. We'll spend all our time trying to do that ourselves. We aren't supposed to do it ourselves. We have a God who is faithful, who desires to be our guide in this life, to be our strength in this life, to walk us through this life. Here's the thing. If you're struggling to see God's faithfulness in the midst of trial right now, I want to make you a specific challenge today to pray every single day this week, first thing in the morning, whether you're a morning person or not, first thing in the morning, pray that God would make his faithfulness clear to you that day. Because I really want you to see it. It's there. God wants you to see it because recognizing and understanding the faithfulness of God can make all the difference in how you navigate this life because it's not all on you. It doesn't all fall on your shoulders. God is with you. He's faithful. 
God's faithfulness is in fact so great that he made a way for us to be with him for eternity through the sacrifice of his son Jesus. And if you don't know that, I want you to know that today. That he sent Jesus to die for you. And if you haven't claimed him as your savior, if you haven't made that decision to accept him as your savior and been baptized, that's something I would love to talk to you about today or any day. Or if you have made that decision, but maybe there's been some distance between you and God, some heavy doubt or even loss of faith for you, but you want a fresh start, you want to reaffirm that belief in him, I would encourage you to make the decision to rededicate your life to him today or any day. Or if you're a believer in Christ and you've been around New Life for a while, and you feel it's time to make this your church home to become a member of the, the fellowship here at New Life, we'd love to talk to you about that as well today or any time. If you have one of those decisions to make today, I'd invite you to come forward as we stand and sing together.